my name is Drew Berryessa. I have been in ministry to men and women in the LGBTQ community for the last 22 years. I come from a background having struggled with that issue myself, but the Lord has addressed those issues in my life and done an incredible work of discipleship and transformation in my life. This is just like the 10,000-foot view. Um, and I spent my first several years in ministry in a ministry called Portland Fellowship in Portland, Oregon. It was a discipleship ministry, uh, helping men and women who were walking out of that identity and submitting their lives to Jesus and wanting to figure out how to make their, um, their walk with the Lord and their sexuality congruent. And I had the privilege of seeing hundreds of people met by Jesus and transformed in his love and grace. Part of that ministry was also being able to run a friends and family group for members of parents, family members, brothers, sisters, friends, of those who had loved ones who identified in the LGBTQ community, and they were just trying to figure out how do I love them and yet remain faithful to my convictions at the same time. Uh, after doing that ministry, uh, 11 years on the staff, several years just as a volunteer before that, I saw the need to equip the body of Christ and get out of our, our little nonprofit ghetto that I was in there and help get into the body of Christ and help equip the church to respond to this issue. Because truly, one of the things that I saw that broke my heart in our ministry is people would do well when they came to our ministry, but what was very important is that they connect within the body of Christ, not just the little parachurch organization, but within the context of the local church. But so often the local church didn't know what to do with the people that were coming into the local church having struggled with this issue. And unfortunately, several people, we would see this happen. It's just like what Jesus preached when he talked about the, the seeds sown, some on the rocky soil, some on the path, some, you know, in the scorching sun. Some people just weren't able to root well in the church, and so their faith and their discipleship withered. And that happens, but... I grew a passion in my heart to see the body of Christ be fertile soil for people to walk out of this identity and out of this struggle and be rooted deeply in the body of Christ. And for that to happen, the body of Christ needs to know how to respond. We need to know how to be a, a safe place and a healthy place for people. And not just with this struggle, but with all sorts of relational and sexual struggles. So I shifted my ministry to start a living letter, which I travel the country and speak to churches, organizations, camps, whoever will have me, and present my testimony and what I've learned over the last 22-plus years of wrestling through this. Uh, I also am a pastor at a church in Medford, Oregon, um, which helps me get my head out of this issue once in a while and just teach the Bible, which is fun. Um, and uh, I love our community down there, and I love being able to experience the body of Christ in a wide range. Uh, it's just good for my soul. So, today I'll be presenting, uh, in this session, a message that I call The Tension in the Middle, How to Respond to the LGBTQ Community in Truth and Love. Ready for this? Is that better? Okay. So, I'm going to focus today on these two biblical mandates that Christ displayed beautifully, yet so often the church struggles to employ correctly, and that's truth and love. And one of the reasons why the church hold, fails sometimes to hold these two in response is it can feel as if we have to put emphasis on one or the other. It can sometimes feel that they're contradictory to one another. Uh, but to hold each together equally 
as two pillars of how we support our ministry is truly the gospel-centered response. And I want to suggest that our ability to engage with this issue in truth and love will depend on a, a couple things. One, how we understand the character of God. Actually, the church, how it presents itself to the world is dependent on how it views the character of God and whether or not we have a right idea of the character of God. Second, we have to understand a biblical perspective on sexuality as a whole. Because if we're going to disciple people who are coming from a broken place of sexuality, we better understand if we're moving them towards something that is actually a biblical and healthy perspective rather than just one that maybe we don't realize is broken as well. And three, we have to understand and relate to the LGBTQ identified individual. Understand where they're coming from, what it is, how do we view them, how do we view their responses, how do we view their humanity. Those three things will really be important to clarify in order to have a truth and love perspective. Uh, so I'm going to focus first on how we understand the character of God. Uh, one of my favorite Christian authors slash theologians was A.W. Tozer. I call him Ah Tozer. That was a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. He wrote this, Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending on her concept of God. And I insist upon this, and I've said it many times before, that the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy conception of God. Now, during the question and answer time that some of you were at, some of you maybe weren't, I introduced this idea of this heresy that's crept into our culture. And it's this, this idea presented by a philosopher, German philosopher named George Will, Willem Frederick Hegel. And he had this theology that viewed God as the oppressor and Jesus come to liberate us from God. That God was imperfect and that we perfected God as humans through conflict and eventually when God was perfected, he would join with humanity. It's a really jacked up theology. However, sometimes this subtle aspects of this creep into the church and affect the way that we minister. Because when we look at the Bible as a whole and theology as a whole, I'm thinking that some of us have maybe felt like we have to apologize for the Old Testament God and say, oh, no, 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 Jesus hasn't come yet. It's okay. He gets better. Anyone ever sometimes feel that when you're having to explain, I don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah or, you know, the annihilation of people, that, that God's people are entering the promised land and killing all the people <laughs> to possess the land? And how do we reconcile that character of God with the Jesus that we see in the Gospels, who is incredibly full of love and grace and, and all of that? some of the balance of that, of how we reconcile that, is just our understanding of God as a whole and his character. And this balance of God being a just God and a righteous God, and also a merciful and a gracious God. And they're not in conflict with one another. But our own filters and biases that we walk into the scriptures with make it sometimes difficult to hold those two things. Does that make sense? So we're going to begin to look at this a little bit, and we're going to examine our concept of God through the lens of not only the, um, that, that uh, screwed-up theology of, of Hegel, but also Gnosticism that comes in to the church. It's been a problem since the church founded thousands of years ago, and it is a problem today. And as we know from Ecclesiastes, what has been before will be again. What has happened before will happen again. There is nothing new under the sun. That maybe should encourage you as we look at our current culture and think, oh, it's never been this bad. Yeah, it has. This is just our turnaround, this wheel. 
Maybe it'll be the last turn around the wheel. Who knows? But it's just our turn for this season and this manifestation of, of this stuff coming at us. So when we look at this and when we look at how we understand how these things infiltrate in, one of the ways that it happens is we begin to weigh our understanding of God's character and how we do ministry on either truth or either love. That makes sense? This was true in Jesus' time. You saw the Pharisees. They were very much in that truth kind of legalistic manifestation of, of their interpretation of God. The Pharisees loved the law. They loved the Torah. They loved it so much they put new rules on top of it, in, even on top of the r- rules in the law that God gave. If you know, They went down to the nitty-gritty of following the law. In fact, if we don't look at the Pharisees sometimes and understand that the, the Bible is asking us to take a look at ourselves as good Christians, then we're missing some of the point of the narrative and some of the, the, the rebukes and some of the reflections that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. Because many of us in the church have responded in a truth perspective. And what that can kind of look like is that can look like um, a lot of anger coming up in the church when we see what's happening in culture. A lot of offense, a lot of entitlement as we see maybe the favor that we've enjoyed in in culture 20, 30 years ago evaporated before our eyes and wondering what happened. And wanting to stand up for righteousness and make sure that people know that they're, they're wrong. And we get this focus on the righteousness and judgment of God, but we forget that we are all sinners saved by grace. This also starts manifesting in the church where we unwittingly build a hierarchy of sins. And I shared this in my testimony in the first service, that the clobber passages that have been used to accuse and condemn the gay community, the six passages of Scripture that specifically address homosexual behavior, and in particular the one that, that I shared, has a long list of sins that anyone in the church can find themselves in. But that Scripture is not often used in the church to reflect to all of us where we need to surrender to Jesus, but has been used as a proof text just for the gay community. When we get into this righteousness, we start we start making a hierarchy of sins that don't make sense because every sin separates us from God. Every sin requires us to have Jesus as our Savior. Every sin requires the blood of Jesus to cover and wash and reconcile us to Him. Not every sin is equally consequential here and now, but every sin is equally consequential eternally. Make sense? So when we start getting in this, you know, truth side, we start forgetting that people are people. That the the ideas or the sins or the spiritual strongholds that are represented in the communities of these people are embodied in the lives of individual people with eternal souls who have feelings, who have been hurt, who need a little bit more care than what we choose to maybe sometimes express to them. This might look like um, the justification of tossing truth grenades into, you know, Facebook or Instagram or the interwebs or, you know, a conversation because we're just going to speak the truth in love and this truth that we're speaking has not been seasoned by love one bit. I don't want to ask for a show of hands of who has gotten into an argument online on Facebook. Uh, How many of you have Facebook? Raise your hands. How many have Instagram? 
how many people have commented on anything on Facebook and Instagram? Some of you aren't raising your hands, and I just want to let you know Jesus is watching. <laughs> when we weigh on the side of truth, aggression begins to come out. We get aggressive. We lack grace. We allow fear responses to begin to crop up in us because we see maybe privileges that we've had or favor that we've had evaporating and we get anxious and we start attacking. We start settling into some legalism and self-righteousness that we don't even realize we're doing. And we start marginalization where we push people this way or that way. This is where I've, I've ministered in so many different churches and um, you know, we'll have a question and answer time and someone will say, well, what happens What happens if we have one of them come into the church on Sunday morning? One of them. Why are we even saying that? Why are we even worrying about that? Isn't it supposed to be the place where people can come and learn about Jesus? Didn't we grow up singing hymns like, come just as you are? Where did we forget where we came from and where we first were when we came to saving knowledge of who Jesus is. You know, we, we, when we weigh on the true side, we start viewing the building as the temple of the Holy Spirit rather than this. This is not God's house. This is God's house. When we start weighing on truth as a, as a distortion of God's character, we get a distorted view of God. That God is angry, and God is ready to bring the thunder. And honestly, God is, if there's going to be any judgment that's going to come, it's going to come to the house of God first. Because that's what his word says. When we weigh on the side of truth, we need a correction in posture. And I don't know a better place to go than the word of God for that. So if you're finding yourself a little bit maybe in the truth spectrum, let me just speak this over you. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of this full accord and of one mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let the word instruct us on this, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. When we find ourselves in a, in a judgmental or a truth place or a standing up for righteousness place, can I suggest that we look to the example of Jesus and, and ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit if we might need a little bit more of a dose of humility. If we might be willing to not fight for ourselves for a moment and ask the question, 
What does it look like to fight for those who are lost in sin? Would it look the same way? Would it have the same posture that I have right now? Does that make sense? On the other end of the spectrum are those that err on the side of love. The conviction and the instruction to love our neighbor is taken to mean that to demonstrate love practically to our neighbor so that they can feel loved and accepted. Uh, and that trumps any responsibility to call people to repentance. A lot of people that, that are, you know, this is motivated by legitimate empathy a lot of the time. And people who tend to be on this, they will say things like, I'm just going to love them in the kingdom of God. Or they'll quote, you know, a, a St. Francis quote, you know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. It's like, okay, stop it. Can I say just um, in response to that for just a moment, it is no longer sufficient to believe that people know where we stand because we identify as Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean anything in this culture anymore. We have to actually speak what we believe. We actually have to stand up and graciously communicate what we believe. Not to the spectrum of like standing on the, on the side of the road with a sign, although maybe the Lord has called you to that, and if he has, please put a soft face while you're doing it. Please be gracious while you're doing it. But we can't also just be squishy and waiting for people to ask us what we believe or trying just to love people into the kingdom of God. Because when love isn't tethered to truth, it's not love. Likewise, when truth is not tethered to love, it's not truth. They need each other. Because they're inseparable from one another. And Jesus embodied this better than any being in the cosmos because he was literally the incarnate God and the perfect reflection of the Father. We also have um, this shift that's happening in culture that by default, love is interpreted as acceptance and celebration. And you're not loving unless you're celebrating everybody and everything. And we're seeing this infiltrate into the church in many different ways. Young adults and youth are shifting to this position by default. Partially because they're not being taught how to incarnate our theology in a way that is relational. And partially because the value for people and the inherent value of each person is just a little bit more on the scale balanced than the older generation. It looks a little bit like this. Dr. Kathy Cook, she runs a ministry called Celebrate Kids. She's a brilliant woman. And she makes this observation that says this, the older generation have belief-based relationships, meaning you're in relationship with people that share your beliefs. You don't tend to have large numbers of relationships with people that don't share your beliefs. So it's kind of polarized a little bit. So you have this group where you don't, you're not challenged in your belief system, and it's okay. You're challenged maybe by culture, but the, your community, we all are in this together. On the contrast, the younger generation have relationship-based beliefs. So the people they're in relationship get to shape their beliefs, and they'll change from person to person based on the power that that relationship has to inform their mind and their belief system. So that's why you'll have young people that they idolize this person one day, but then this person shows up, now they're their hero, and now they're the hero, and the beliefs change from moment to moment. That's on the extreme end, but on the, the more... Towards the middle end, you have students and you have young parents that look at maybe a sibling or a 
child or someone that is beginning to move into the spectrum of LGBTQ and the theology that they once held dear now has to change because it doesn't fit with this person. Does that make sense? So the relationship informs the belief. Now, can I suggest that neither of these two are actually very effective? Because sometimes our belief-based relationships push us in a, in, a, in a ghetto where our ideas aren't challenged and we're holding on to things that, that, don't, that aren't very biblical. But they're comfortable. And over here, definitely, this is not helpful because truth is not subjective. It doesn't change based on how you feel and who you're talking to. And so we have to come, again, to the middle where we hold things in tension that that both are valuable. And if for a moment you wonder, well, Drew, is this biblical? Yes. Yes, it is. From the mouth of Jesus, Mark 12, 30-31, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. This is holding on to the truth of who God is. When we love Him, we obey Him. When we love Him, we know Him. When we love Him, we're in relationship with Him. His heart informs our life. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these, and all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two things. When we hold them both together, we actually have a more accurate view of the heart of God. Because God does engage relationally, or else Jesus would never be incarnate and walk among us. We would never have the ability to say and look at a scripture that says, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he emptied himself of divinity, took human form, and experienced every temptation that we ever would to the length of the strength of that temptation. Because he's the only person in all of human history that knows exactly how strong temptation is because he never gave into it sense? Make sense? When we weigh on the love side of things, passivity and cheap grace begin to flourish. Immaturity in our faith begins to flourish because there is no discipleship. Because discipleship requires discipline, and discipline requires truth. There's also no transformational power happening in our, in our congregations. We are not being conformed to the image of Christ because obedience is required for that. And so we have, instead of Christ followers who look like Christ followers, we have a bunch of pagans in our churches that just have Christian hobbies. And we don't see God transforming lives. And then we have the, the greatest apologetic question of our age. If you, us, as the church, believe in a supernatural God who has supernatural power then why aren't we seeing supernatural transformation in the lives and the hearts and the minds of the people who say they follow him? There's resistance to sanctification because there's resistance to repentance. And we view commandments, if we're in the, the love category, on the extreme end, we start viewing commandments negatively as punishment. Do you hear the, the oppressive God? mentality in that, where Hegel's God is the oppressor and Jesus came to liberate us from God, represented a bit in this category. Because God's law is bad, and his righteousness is bad, and obedience is bad, and love and grace, which is what Jesus came to free us from the law. 
That's what this is. This eventually degrades us down into celebrating sin. Whereas one side is legalistic, one side is so very passive and celebrating the very thing that the Word of God says is evil. And we see this in our culture today, don't we? I know this isn't very fun news. I'm, I apologize. You want me to make a joke? Knock, knock. Jesus. He's saying, listen to Drew. Um, now, let's go forward. We have a problem in our, Christ, in our community. And I'm not saying that every church is one or the other. There's a spectrum out there. And the question is, are we brave enough to go before the Holy Spirit and say, God, can you reveal to us where are we at in this spectrum? Where do we need to course correct? Because like anything else, there's one extreme and there's the other extreme. And sometimes we you know, go back and forth among them like an old episode of Star Trek when the Enterprise is getting hit by, like, a, and they go this way and they go that way. You, you know what I'm talking about, older people in the room? Okay. One of the ways that we get course corrected by the Lord is through His discipline. And the Word does say that in Hebrews 12, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, and nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there from whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as they seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. From the moment, all discipline seems painful, but not painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. God disciplines his church in his sovereign will. He disciplines us. And historically, we can look back at the Old Testament and see some of the ways that he disciplined his children. The cosmic timeout of exile happened several times in Israel's history. Where when the children of God were not behaving like the children of God, where they were going one end of the spectrum or the other, where they're letting idolatry or they're letting adultery of the heart come in, or they're letting sexual sin, or they're letting all this stuff in, then a pagan nation would come in and overtake them. And they'd be kicked out of the land through exile and put in the giant cosmic timeout. And the Lord would discipline his children. Essentially, we can put it this way. The people of God, who, when they're walking like the people of God, enjoy the favor of God and the protection of God and the, the, the freedom that he offers us, when they start disobeying and not representing him, he will bring an entity or an authority or a ruler over them who is worse than they were, that they start feeling, oh no, what happened? And they'll course correct under that discipline. True? Let me ask you a sort of rhetorical question. Why do you think it is that such a small portion of the population represented in the LGBTQ community has so much cultural influence? Do we believe in a sovereign God? That is not a trick question. Do we believe in a sovereign God? Do we believe that with a sovereign God, it says in the scripture that he is the one who gives 
He who raises up leaders and gives authority. If we believe in a sovereign God, if that is our doctrine, then we can see that this population, this small population has been given power and authority, then we can only conclude that it is God who gave it to them. Why would he do that? Because he's disciplining his church. I'm going to say something that is very emotional for me. And I, I submit it to you in as much grace as I can because it is, it is very emotional for me. I have watched the church in my lifetime be very content to watch people in the gay community go ahead and die and go to hell and not give one care about it. In fact, celebrate when things happen. Celebrate when AIDS came into awareness in the 1980s. Celebrate that that has got to be God's judgment on those homosexuals. I've watched leaders in the Christian community say things like Hurricane Katrina is God's judgment on the homosexuals. These are prominent leaders in the evangelical church who are more than happy to say that every calamity is God's judgment on and yet, scripturally, God does not bring judgment to the world yet. That's coming. But who he judges here and now is the church. Who he disciplines here and now is the church. I would like to present to you guys the idea, and I believe it is very much scriptural, that God is tired of his people not acting like his people. And we're in time out right now. And it's not just the gay community. It's a lot of communities that the church has been really okay with letting injustice and pain happen to them and paying no attention. You know one of the reasons why critical theory and this oppressor versus the oppressed mentality that is affecting our culture so profoundly has so much weight? Is there is legitimate hurt that it finds its fuel from these legitimate unhealed wounds these offenses and injustices that are real. And because the people of God who are supposed to be the people to bring transformation and bring justice and bring the gospel and bring restoration and redemption to the world, we are the body of Christ. Because we have not been bothered to step in with the gospel, which is the only answer for the ills and the brokenness of this world. A vacuum won't stay empty. To the starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. That's Proverbs 27, 7. And it plays out individually for us, and it plays out culturally and historically. This isn't a small issue. This is a big issue. And Jesus really did sum it up a little bit in addressing this. And Because our, our, our tendency is to then look at those that are oppressing us and want to point our finger in judgment to their wickedness. And Jesus says in Luke 6, can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye? 
when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Basically, he's saying, do not be a hypocrite. We want to look at the sexual brokenness in our culture and go, gross, horrible, bad, fair enough. Do you know the statistics of sexual brokenness in the church are the equal to that in culture? Divorce, divorce rates, equal. Pornography use, equal. We are not better. We are broken. And we may have forgiveness on our side, and we may, we may have the gospel on our side, but that doesn't mean that we're appropriating it correctly. And that doesn't mean that we can get to stand in judgment of the world when we are doing the same things and claiming to have the supernatural power of God to assist us to live like Christ. One of the biggest struggles that I had walking out of homosexuality when I surrendered my sexuality to Jesus and then when the Lord started like moving me towards potential marriage is I kept looking at my friends and people in the church to say, okay, what does healthy sexuality look like? I couldn't find any examples. So every person I went to either confessed to me their secret struggle with pornography or they were tired of their wife because she just wasn't you know, enticing them anymore or you know, just go down the list of reasons. And I kept going, well, what is, the, what is the goal that I'm supposed to look towards here? Because I have this in culture and now I have this in the church. What is the goal? We're all broken. We get angry at the world, but we don't realize that when we point there, we have these many fingers pointing right back at us. I would say amen, but you all look very upset right now, so. I'll say it to myself. Amen, Drew. Good point. Thank you. So, when it comes to the truth and love thing, if we understand God's character correctly, and we understand how beautiful that marriage of truth, the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, the holiness of God, mixes and, and marries beautifully with the grace, mercy, and love of God, then we, we have an expression that we can give out to the world because those who've been forgiven much because we recognize the need for forgiveness love much. Forgiven much means you've got to admit the truth and then you experience the love of God and then you are a powerful witness to the world. Make sense? I'm going to do a litmus test here. I want, I want to check to see if we're off balance in our perspective of God real quick. Let me ask you this question. In... In the Old Testament, one of the punishments for homosexual behavior was to be put to death. Do we still require it? Yes. The difference is who pays it. Jesus pays it. My sin deserves death. But because the blood of Jesus has covered me, his death has paid that price. Eventually, the world, not reconciled to God, in eternity will pay for their sin if they are not reconciled to God. You see, this is a litmus test that we really have to begin to understand. In the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. You know that adultery and idolatry are tied in the scriptures. And idolatry is just simply when we go to some other source instead of God. We're all guilty. Who pays for that? Jesus, if we are in him. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. When we get into this weird heresy 
that God is the oppressor. We view the law of God as the oppressor and Jesus coming to save us from Yahweh. But instead, He didn't save us from it. He fulfilled the law. He redeems us. God is not bad. God is good because Jesus is God. The law did not get abolished. Jesus accomplishes it for us. And when we allow these these things motivated by a distortion of our view of God to settle into our heart, we start we start not taking sin seriously. My sin required death. And Jesus paid it for me. Praise God. I would say amen, but again, you don't look very happy right now. So let's talk about sex. Baby, let's talk about me. That's an old song. I'm from the 90s. I'm sorry. You know, God has given us some good instruction and intentionality for sex, and it's vastly more powerful and beautiful than we really know, than we can possibly imagine. The themes of sexuality weave through the entirety of the Bible from beginning to end. I'm going to give a more uh, robust teaching on this this afternoon because parenting to a sexually broken world means we have to know the goal. But what I will say, just to whet the appetite a little bit, is that the Bible starts with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and it ends with the marriage of the Lamb and his bride. And all throughout the scriptures, Jesus Jesus in the New Testament ties spiritual themes over and over and over and over and over again to sexuality. I'll give you one example here today, before this afternoon. When Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for their self-righteousness, he said, your attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags. Anyone know the literal translation of filthy rags? Menstrual cloths. Some of you were like, oh, you said that on Sunday morning. Jesus said it, blame him. We get like, oh, gross, gritty. But let me ask you this. Jesus spoke in parable all the time. He gave us a tangible example so we could understand the spiritual truth. So let me ask you, what do we know is going on when a woman is having her period? What is the, what is the thing that is ultimately that is pointing to? She's not pregnant. Your attempt at righteousness, Pharisees, is just evidence that there is no life in you. The life of God is not in you. You are not growing the life of God in you. This is evidence that only death is coming out of you. He followed it up by saying, it's like you're a whitewashed tomb. Pristine and clean on the outside, dead and rotting on the inside. There is no life of God in you. There's so many more but he ties directly to sexuality. And you're sitting there stunned and looking at me like, why have we never heard this? Because we get so uncomfortable with sexuality in the church and forget that God uses it as the most powerful parable for us to understand him and his relationship with us. There's a reason why sexuality is so jacked up in culture and in the church. Because we don't know what the purpose is. We'll talk more about that this afternoon. I hope you all come back and not, about, not scared away by menstrual cloths. 
talk for a minute about sexual sin. We need to understand and recognize sexual sin and the weight of sexual sin and how it affects us and how it affects the church. If we were to look at our culture and just ask ourselves the question, what would our world look like if the world was simply obedient in just the one area of sexuality? What would this world not have in it? Well, there'd be no divorce. There'd be no rape. There'd be no child sexual abuse. There'd be no sexual slavery. There'd be no abortion. There'd be no prostitution. There'd be no pornography. There'd be no marital infidelity. There'd be no premarital sex. There would be no STDs. There would be no, probably, eating disorders because eating disorders are influenced by an unrealistic body image. You think our world would be a little bit different without all that? Oh, and by the way, there also wouldn't be any of the psychological, relational, or economic, or, or political problems that come with all of those things. A vastly different world in one area. J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote The Lord of the Rings. If you didn't know that, shame on you. He wrote in a letter to his son as his son was preparing to get married. He wrote a letter to him and this quote that the dislocation and the, and the uh, disorganization of our sexual instincts is the chief symptom of the fall of mankind and it is Satan's favorite playground. And he is endlessly ingenious in using it. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Sexual sin is very weighty. Sexual sin is different than other sin. The Apostle Paul said, all other sins you sin outside of your body. Sexual sin you sin against your own body. And it's true. It's true for a number of reasons. It's true because when we sin sexually, there are, there are chemicals and hormones that are released in our brain when we have an orgasm. Whether that orgasm is achieved in a rape scenario or an abuse scenario or a consensual scenario... What happens is, first off, oxytocin is released in our, in our brain, and we begin bonding emotionally and connecting in a long-term neural connection with whatever it is that we have now connected with sexually. And then there's another one, uh, dopamine, oh sorry, dopamine is the one that, that releases, and it attaches to our limbic system, which is where also the fight, fight, freeze, fawn response happens, and then, and then oxytocin is the bonding one. And so we're, we're always going to be attached to that memory. And when we come to Jesus, if we've been in sexual sin, Jesus forgives us. He washes our spirit clean. We are not guilty. We are not shamed by him. However, Jesus does not give us amnesia. Much as we might wish he did. When my wife and I walked into our, our marriage, we both had a sexual history. And when we began engaging in sexual behavior and in marital intimacy. You know, we had this six-month kind of honeymoon period where it was just wonderful, but then all the memories of what I had done began coming up in the middle of our, of our time together. And you know what? That happens for a lot of people, and no one talks about it. I talk about everything, if you can, in case you haven't noticed yet. So we committed to one another that we were not going to let anyone else either by memory or whatever, into our marriage bed. So 
we would be in the middle of this and a memory would come up and I would have to stop and say, sweetheart, consequences for my pastor coming up. Can we stop and can we pray and submit these things to Jesus, please? I sowed those seeds in my life and the word of God says, so to please the spirit from the spirit you'll reap life, so to please the flesh from the flesh you'll reap destruction. And those weeds were popping up in the garden of my mind and I was not going to leave them there. And for a solid two and a half years of our marriage, whenever stuff would come up, we'd have to stop and we'd have to pray and I'd have to admit before my wife and before God a memory of something that I did. My wife was so wonderful and gracious. We didn't enjoy this process, but we were committed to it together. And after two and a half years, that doesn't happen anymore. But six years into our marriage, memories of her sexual abuse as a child began to come up. And we had to walk through that and do the same thing. She didn't ask for those things to happen to her because we don't always just reap the consequences of our own sin. We reap the consequences of the sins that others do to us. And we had to walk through that. Sexual sin has consequences. Lastly, because we're running out of time and I talk forever, we have to we have to understand how to look at the LGBTQ person. We'll talk more about this this afternoon if you come back, but the thing that I want to really press into here is if we view them as the enemy, we're going to respond to them like an enemy. We're going to respond with hostility. We're going to respond keeping them away from us. We're going to respond and focus on the differences and the things that make us uncomfortable. We're going to see them through the lens of their sin and not through the lens of the fact that they are created in the image of God and that God loves them and wants relationship with them. We're going to reinforce isolation and marginalization and we're going to push them further away. And this culture war that we're in, we're going to feed right into it. They're going to view us as the oppressor and we're bad and we're horrible. And our response is only going to confirm that. If we see them through the lens of sin and brokenness, that is what's going to happen. If we see them as the enemy, that's what's going to happen. However, if we change our perspective, and if we are shaped by Scripture, 2 Timothy 2, 23-26 says this, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Everyone able to teach and not resentful. Opponents, not enemies, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. We view prisoners of war very differently than we view enemies. Can I ask you all please to shift your perspective? No matter how hostile or how angry or how vile the person, can we remember they are prisoners of a holy war? And yeah, they may be trying to attack us in the midst of this holy war. They're not the enemy. They're taken captive by the enemy. If you'll permit me just like five more minutes. 
Because I want to give you just a little bit of good news. Do you want a little good news? When we get out of a fear and an entitled mentality and we just start looking at this community through the lens of the gospel, then our posture changes and we will see things happen we never thought we could. June 12th of 2016. Anyone know what happened on June 12th of 2016? Well, it's my birthday. Shame on you for not knowing. (laughs) One of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history happened at the Orlando Gay Nightclub, the Pulse Nightclub. I'm a pastor of a church. I was I was getting up that Sunday morning, my birthday. I knew that I was going to do some you know in, some of the things for the announcements and everything, and lead some congregational prayer. And I picked up my phone and I saw the news, and my heart immediately broke. Because there were sons and daughters of families that were dead, and there were people created in the image of God who just lost their opportunity to come back to Jesus or to repent. And we'll probably spend an eternity for some of them. Maybe some of them knew Jesus and just were prodigal at the moment. Some of them weren't going to get the chance to come to know Jesus. And I love this community. I love them because I was, I was there. I understand why they are where they are. I understand the pain And I understand the rejection. And I understand that the church is partially culpable in that. And I could anticipate already what culturally was going to happen because of this. And so when I got up on the platform that Sunday morning with tears running down my face, I said, Church, whatever you feel, we need to intercede and pray for that community right now. And we need to pray that God takes what Satan meant to destroy and he uses it for his good and somehow there is good that comes out of this. And we need to approach this from a humble position because if we try to rush in as Christians and try to help, we need to understand that by our presence there alone, it's going to just add fuel to the fire because that community already feels rejected by us and already feels judged by us and now they're vulnerable and in pain and if we try to rush in with the hands and feet of Jesus because we want to be seen as the hands and feet of Jesus it's going to hurt more we've got to seek the Lord's wisdom to know how to respond to this and we have to respond to this so our church spent a couple you know, some time in really intense intentional prayer And of course, we left it to the Lord to know what would happen. Do you know what happened on June 12th, 2018? I was in California at the state capitol. We'd just done a demonstration on the steps of the capitol to oppose a law called AB 2943, which was seeking to classify as business fraud any gospel presentation of sexual redemption. Anything that would be classified by the culture as conversion therapy, which is simply just Christian discipleship, classify a day like this if you took an offering for me on a day like this. Oh, actually, no, since I received a honorarium, 
that's business fraud because I'm representing to all of you something that is fake in California. So we're there to oppose that law. And as we were sitting in the Judiciary Committee and the writer of that law, uh, Assemblyman Evan Lowe, a self-identified gay man, got up to the platform and he said, on the anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting, we must pass this law to protect our community from the abuses of the church and the abuses in this culture to our community that send people to their death. We must pass this law. And then two men walked up to the microphone and said, our names are Angel Cologne and Luis Ruiz. We gave our lives to Jesus lying on the floor of the Pulse nightclub, having been shot and trampled. Jesus has redeemed our lives, and the very thing you're trying to outlaw has transformed our lives and given us life and purpose and meaning. You do not get to take our personal tragedy and hijack it to pass your evil law. Jesus redeemed my friends, Angel and Luis, both pastors' sons who had strayed as prodigals, both drug addicted, both at the end of their rope, just going for one more night at the club to escape their problems. When the gunman came in and shot them, and in desperation they called out to Jesus, and Jesus met them there. And you know what they are now? World evangelists for the kingdom of God. You can see their story on Netflix and Amazon, because as much as the world doesn't want to give credence to their story, well, they're victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting. You're not going to silence them. There are Saul's waiting to become Paul's in the gay community. Will we receive them? Will we disciple them? Will we give them a home in the church and set them loose on this culture? The first church that both of them went to didn't want them. But they met Jesus, so they kept going. This is a moment, church, where we get to respond to what Jesus is doing. It may seem dark right now, but the harvest is plentiful. The workers are just few. Amen? Lord God, this was a heavy one. But I hope we feel your hand on it. I pray, Father, that each of my brothers and sisters here today will weigh this that they will go to you with it and they will seek to know how you are asking them to respond to it. Ultimately, God, we believe because we know your character that you take the things that the enemy means to destroy us and you turn them for our good and our benefit. And Lord, if we are in, as the church, in a season of being chastised and, and disciplined by you, can we understand it in the way that you mean it? chastisement is a punishment that cleanses and purifies may we be purified Lord and may we be discipled to be more like you 
And may our churches be places where people from any walk of life can come and experience the gospel transformation that you offer us. But Lord, let us be transformed. Let us repent of the things we have held in our own hearts and lives that are idols in front of you. Let us surrender our own self-righteousness and our own judgment. Let us surrender our own passivity. Whatever end of the spectrum that we have gotten to, Lord, let us cast down those unworthy ideas of who you are and what the gospel is and be transformed by the truth of your love, your grace, your righteousness, your judgment, all of it. And may we see a flood of Saul's turning into Paul's from the LGBTQ community. And Father, may we see your kingdom advance in a way that we never could imagine. We love you and we trust you.